Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. This morning, we're beginning a new series entitled Suburban Spirituality. And uh, it's all about uh, finding faith and growing in faith while living in the suburbs. And I thought kind of to start off this morning, um, since most of you may be unsure about you really want to classify yourself as a suburbanite, uh, we've kind of come up with the top ten ways that you can tell that you have truly become a suburbanite. Okay, so see how many of these might, uh, might apply to you. Top ten ways you can tell you've really become a suburbanite. Number ten, you've had to trade in your sports car for a minivan just to carry around your kids' soccer equipment. Number nine, you wanted enough lawn in your backyard to be able to play ball with your son, but you spend more time back there arguing with him about mowing it. Number eight, you can tell you become a suburbanite when you had dreams of the family dinner hour, but reality is Subway sandwiches between homework and Little League practice. You become a suburbanite. Number seven, you make over $200,000 a year and still can barely afford your house payment. You have become a suburbanite. Number six, you know the difference between a Nissan Murano, a Toyota 4Runner, and a Honda CRV. You have become truly a suburbanite. Number five, you actually understand the offside rule in soccer. It's an indicator that you are a suburbanite. Number four, you spend almost as much time going to and from work as you actually do on the job. Number three, you pass an elementary school playground and the children are all busy talking on their cell phones. Number two, the extra money you were counting on from a second income is actually getting eaten up by daycare, your house cleaner, your gardener, and the dog walker. And the number one way to tell that you have become a suburbanite is the two-hour traffic jam you just sat through wasn't a horrific nine-car freeway pile-up, but the drop-off circle at your daughter's elementary school. You have become a suburbanite. We live here in suburbia, every one of us in this room, and we do so because we believe or we have this notion or idea that it's a good place to live. But if, it, if it's, whether it's nicer homes or, or better schools or more parks, more recreational opportunities, safer neighborhoods, whatever the reason might be, most of us live here in suburbia because of what we call quality of life. We're looking for a better life. Did you know that by 1970, there were more Americans living in the suburbs than there were either in, in downtown cities, urban cities, or in rural areas. And by the year 2000, by the year 2000, there were more people, more Americans living in suburbs than in rural cities or, or <laughs> urban cities or rural areas combined. That America has become a suburban community. And many people see that as the American dream. And other people aren't quite so sure. I saw a bumper sticker not too long ago. It said suburbia is where they tear down trees and name streets after them. That's their definition. Good or bad, for better or worse, suburbia is where we live. And Jesus had a lot to say about how to live wherever you live. And his Sermon on the Mount, I think, speaks to every aspect of life, for every generation, wherever we might find ourselves, and probably more importantly, it speaks to us today, in 21st century suburbia. 
Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, said these words. In fact, they're in your outline. Would you pull it out and read this out loud with me? Matthew 5, verses 13 and 16. Jesus said these words. Read them with me, would you? You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness... Thank you. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Jesus said, wherever it is that you live, wherever you find yourself in your situation of life, live like salt. Bring a sense of preservative. Bring spice. Bring flavor and taste to your community. He said, you're a city set on a hill. The light of the world, wherever it is that you live, live as a beacon of light to your neighbors, to your friends, to your family. And through the rest of his Sermon on the Mount, he talks specifically about some very important aspects of our life on what it means to live like salt and to live like light in this world. And I think the challenge for us is to learn to live out authentic Christianity in the context of our neighborhoods, 21st century suburbia. And there's probably no more challenging passage than Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, particularly in chapter 6. Jesus said these words, and I think they speak right to our hearts. Do not store up for yourself treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, the whole body is full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or your body, what you will wear, is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. Do, do not, they do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See the lilies of the field, how they grow? They do not spin or labor. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his splendor was, dressed, was not dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is tossed into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. I don't know about you, but those are challenging words. They speak to my heart a lot <laughs> about my lifestyle, about my choices. And they speak with challenge, but they also speak with comfort. And I think what Jesus is trying to get at is he says, there is a different way of living when you're a Christ follower. 
There's a different sense of hope and security when you're a Christ follower. And we need to learn in 21st century how to move and make this move from being consumers to being contented. Because I think that's the key. And he gave some very specific guidelines and instructions regarding all of it. How to move from consumer mentality to being contented. And he says the one thing we've got to be able to do is stand up to our consumer culture. We live in a day and age that is built around consumerism. Living in suburbia can so distort our perspective. And that's why Jesus said things like, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. He says you've got to get a better perspective on life. It's how you look at your life that's going to determine the way that you live your life. And in suburbia, it's hard to keep perspective. Because consumerism feeds on the suburbs. In the suburbs, we define the good life as a single-family dwelling in a two-car garage. And one of those cars is, a, is an SUV or a minivan. We define the good life by backyards and barbecues. And even our barbecues today are not the same. Do you remember your dad's barbecue? I remember my dad's barbecue. It was just a little dish, a little pan, you know, with a grate over it. And you piled up all the coals on it. And you doused the whole thing with lighter fluid, you know. And you stood back and you threw a match on it. Poof, you know, and then you let it burn for about an hour till it all got down to the coals. My kids bought me a new barbecue for Father's Day this year. It is a three burner. You know, it's gas, it's, it's stainless steel, it's got the lid that opens up and down, it's got three burners, and then it's got a side burner to boil, you know, corn on the side, you know. It's not the barbecue that my dad had. And mine is minuscule compared to some barbecues that I have seen. And when we have built up this whole idea that even our barbecues cannot be just simply coals in a pan with a grate over it. Everything about our culture says bigger and better. And we begin to define our life by creature comforts and material goods. And rarely, if ever, do we define quality of life or the American dream in any way that has to do with nurturing our souls. The temple of the 21st century is the suburban shopping mall. <laughs> you know there are actually more shopping malls in America now than there are high schools? It's where we hang out. It's where we live most of our lives. The suburban shopping mall has become the temple of the 21st century. We found out even when we were in the process of trying to find property for a permanent home for our church family. And at the time that we were going through all this, the city of Benicia was revising its whole general plan. There was all kinds of plans made for the, for the future growth of our city. And thousands and thousands of homes are going to be built over the next 20 years. And nowhere in all of the general plan was there any allowance anywhere or any thought given to maybe these people might want to go to a church. There was no zoning for churches. There was no space set aside for future church homes. Thousands of homes, tens of thousands of new people moving into our community, and not one thought was given to the possibility that maybe they might want to nurture their souls. That's the mentality of the American dream. That's the consumer mentality that we live against. And Jesus warned us about it. He said, it's all an illusion, folks. It's all an illusion. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Our consumer mentality says, I can provide for my own happiness. I can provide for my own security. I can provide for my own fulfillment. 
If I just use the right toothpaste, if I wear the right cologne, if I have the right shoes and drive the right car, everybody will love me and life will be good. That's what our consumer mentality tells us, that life is all about what you possess and how you wear it. There's an interesting phenomenon just has come up in the last 20, 30 years. It's called branding. Branding is such that we don't think of, of products, we think of actual name brands. It's not just a car, it's a Lexus. <laughs> the BMW is the ultimate driving machine. We don't buy soap, we buy ivory soap. You know? We don't just buy coffee, we buy Starbucks. We don't wear tennis shoes, we wear Nikes. And that's what our mentality says to us. It's all about the brand. It's all about what you wear and the style and the status that comes with it. And no matter what kind of label you put on it, it's just tennis shoes, folks. And no matter how much you pay for it, or whether it's a tall, a grande, or a vente, it's still just coffee. And it's still just a computer. Unless it's a Mac. Then it has great value, okay? You see, we all have our favorite status. We all have our favorite brands. I, I, saw, I don't know if you saw this article this week in the Chronicle. Monopoly finds new balance. Anybody see this? They're coming out with a new version of Monopoly. It's called Monopoly Here and Now. And instead of the thimble, you know, the thimble and the top hat and the tennis shoe, you know, now you can have McDonald's French fries, a Motorola Razor cell phone, <laughs> New balance, uh, new balance tennis shoes and a Toyota Prius to drive around on the board. Now even Monopoly is being branded. By the way, when you pass go, you don't get $200 anymore, you get $2 million. <laughs> That's the game I want to play. Just pass go, collect $2 million. We are branded from the very, very beginning of our lives. I mean, think about it. You go to the mall. Not only is there a gap, Gap for men, gap for women. There is now baby gap. Baby gap. Think about that. Before the kid even knows, he is being branded with gap. That's our mentality. And Jesus said, it is all an illusion. Because no matter what the label is on it, it's going to burn up. It's going to waste away. It's going to rot. In fact, I would be happy if what I owned, I owned long enough to waste away. But usually it becomes obsolete long before it's worn out. And whatever does not waste away, he says, is in danger of being stolen. None of it lasts. It's all an illusion. And if we're going to stand up to the consumer culture, we need to understand it's all an illusion. Not only that, but all it does is generate stress and anxiety. Our consumer culture keeps us on the edge of worry. How will I ever have enough money to buy a house? Then you buy the house. How in the world will I ever have enough money to pay this house payment? And it goes on and on and on. And all we do is worry. And Jesus said, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? See, by definition, worry is trying to exert control over that over which you have no control. That's the bottom line to worry. And the reason that we worry is because under the surface of this illusion of security and happiness, 
we know the real truth. The real truth is no matter how much we have, it will not give us the security that we look for. No matter how much we own or what label it might have on it, it doesn't provide the happiness that we wanted. Oh, it does for a while. But how many of us bought that new item and it was the pride of our life till about three or four months later when it got dirty, you had to wash it, or it got dented and scratched or dinged. It's all illusory. And all it does is create stress and anxiety. In fact, I would say worry might be the very best indicator that consumer, consumerism has gotten a hold of your heart. Stress and anxiety, worry. And ultimately, he says, it's in competition for your soul. This need to acquire and to have is in competition for your very soul. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You see, to be a servant, to be a slave, demands ultimate loyalty. Complete and total devotion and allegiance. And Jesus said there's only one person that fills that. Everything else is a distraction. And anything that pulls you away from that has gotten a hold of your soul. Let me explain it this way. I have a lot of friends. I have three siblings, two parents, two kids. But I only have one wife. <laughs> that is an exclusive relationship. And no matter how much I might love all of my friends and all of the rest of my family, when it comes right down to it, there's only one person that has that exclusive relationship in my life. It's my wife. And in essence, Jesus is using this kind of idea that there's only one God. There is only one who is worthy of your devotion and your faith and your trust. And you cannot put your trust in all of these other things and still be trusting in Him. And the real question is, where do I place my trust and my devotion? Jesus said, how do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul in the process? So let me give you some very practical ways that you can learn to stand up to this consumer mentality. Some of these come from Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. Here's a couple of them. First of all, buy things for their usefulness rather than for their status. It's a good way to combat consumerism. Secondly, avoid things that only make you want more. You know, there are some things that when you buy them, they just make you want more of it. Avoid those things. Here's another one. Learn to share. Both a borrower and a lender be. You don't have to buy everything. You can borrow from other people. Now take good care of it when you do and return it in the same shape that you got it. But you can borrow and you can lend. In fact, here's another one. Develop the habit of giving things away. It's good for you to give stuff away. It reminds you that you don't really need it all. Here's one for you. Try to be the last person on your block to own the latest consumer electronics. Instead of being the first person on your block with that big screen LCD TV, HD, you know, and all the, all the bells and whistles, try to be the last. By the way, here's a hint. If you're the last one on your block to own it, you will get the best price of all. Because <laughs> what started out as $3,000, $4,000 is now down to 1000 
And then if you wait a little bit longer, it'll probably be down to about four or five hundred dollars. Now it won't be top of the line because something else will replace that. But if you wait long enough for that, it'll come down too. And if you wait long enough, you'll find out you didn't have to buy it after all. Try to be the last person on your block to have that latest electronic gadget. Be skeptical of any buy now, pay later schemes. Well, this is a big one. No payments for 16 months. But boy, if you don't make all those payments in 16 months, that 17-month payment is a doozy. Ignore luxury branding messages. Develop a deeper appreciation for God's creation. Shun anything that distracts you from seeking God's kingdom first. Just some simple ways to combat this consumer culture that we live in. On a deeper level, though, Jesus has even more instruction. He says, recognize, first of all, God is good. Trust in God's goodness. He says, get this better perspective. Look at the birds, he says. They don't need to plant or harvest or put food in barns because your heavenly Father feeds them. Verse 28, look at the lilies, how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. He says, your heavenly Father knows what you need. And we serve a good God. He is in control. He is involved. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He has not set it all in motion and then walked away. He is intimately involved in His creation. He is intimately involved in your life. He sees and He knows and He cares and He provides. Now Jesus is not saying don't bother working. He's not saying don't take responsibility for your future. Don't save up for your retirement. He's not saying that, okay? That's not the point of what He's saying. What He's saying is recognize where your ultimate source comes from. It's your Heavenly Father. He cares for you. There are some people in our church family right now who are, have just lost their jobs. You need to hear. He sees and He knows and He cares for you. There are people who are struggling to make ends meet. You need to know we serve a good, generous, and a good giving God. And He sees and he knows, and he cares, and he provides. Yeah, it's true. We do need to learn to distinguish between our wants and our needs. And that's not always easy. You know, it's, it's almost ironic. Well, it is ironic. That as I've been preparing this message and thinking about this whole series, in the middle of all of this, we've had to buy a new car, you know? And it's just like, I, you know, I don't know about you, but... When it comes to one of those big kind of purchases, I just go through all kinds of anxiety. Okay, now what's a want and what's a need? And am I allowed a, need, a want or do I just get the bare minimum? You know? you know, should it be a used car? Should it be a new car? You know, does it need to be this? Do I need these options? Do I not need options? Should I just get the bare minimum? You know, and I wrestle with that stuff all the time. It would be so much easier if Jesus had just said, okay, here's the threshold. You know, here it is. Up to here, I'll take care of you. Anything else beyond that, you're on your own, you know? Or, or anything else beyond that, you're not allowed. You know, it would be so much easier. Just give me the checklist so I could go down the list and say, okay, now I know, that's it, that's all I can expect. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. And I think he doesn't do that on purpose. Because I think what God wants from us is an ongoing, open, honest-hearted dialogue about this issue in our lives. I think He wants us to wrestle with those purchases that we make.
I think he wants us to ask ourselves, do I really need this? Or would something else suffice? Because what he wants is our heart. And when we have to wrestle with these issues, we have to wrestle with matters of the heart. We really do. Understand that we have a good God. By the way, did you notice? Did you notice when he talked about these things? He said, for you are far more valuable to him than they are. He says, look at the birds, how your father clothes, feeds them. Look at the grass of the field, how your father clothes them. But then he goes on, he says, you are much more valuable to him than they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, won't he more surely care for you? He says it twice. You are much more valuable and he will much more care for you. You are far more valuable and he will more surely care for you. In other words, I don't think God says all you get is the bare minimum. I think he says you've been given generously. But with that, we need to be generous in return. We need to develop grateful hearts. You see, consumerism tells us constantly what it is that we don't have. And I think one of the best antidotes to that is to remind ourselves what we do have. And we sit in this room and we can make up a whole list of all the things that God has so generously provided us. Every one of us could. The old thing my mom used to always say, count your blessings. That's a good thing to do. Because our world keeps telling us, this is what you don't have. This is what you don't get. This is what you need to buy. And it's good for us to say, no, I've got more than enough. Grateful hearts. And the last thing Jesus says is make your investments eternal. Store up your treasures in heaven. Where they, will, where they will never become moth-eaten or rusty, and where they will be safe from thieves. You ever wonder what that means? What does it mean to store up treasures in heaven? Well, there's only one thing I can find in Scripture that is consistently, throughout Scripture, referred to as being eternal. And that's people. Everything else, he says, is going to burn up and end someday. But the one thing that lasts is people. You are an eternal being. And so is everyone else around you. We are all eternal beings. And when we forget that, we lose our perspective. To invest in the kingdom of God, to store up treasures in heaven, I believe, is to invest in people. Because when you invest in people, you make eternal investments. You see, when you use your resources to develop a Christ-like character within yourself. That's an investment in eternity. When you use your resources to help meet the needs of those who are in need, that's an investment in eternity. When you use your resources in such a way that you help point people towards faith and you help people come into that relationship with Christ that you have experienced, that's an investment in eternity. And he says, whatever else you do with your resources, make sure that you do that. In his book, The 24-Hour Christian, Earl Palmer writes about the four uses of money. That he describes as biblical uses for money. He says, the first is for doing good, to help meet the needs of other people. That is a, a biblical use of our resources, of our time and of our money. He says, also future good, 
In the same way that every farmer sets aside a certain amount of the harvest for seed, for planting for the next harvest, he says we ought to invest in the future. Some of that involves our own future and saving and planning for our own future, but also investing beyond that. To invest in ministry, to invest in mission, to invest in education, to invest in those things in other people and even in ourselves that bring about lasting investment. And then he says yes for our daily bread. That is a very legitimate and, and, and it is a biblical thing that we are supposed to do with our money. To take care of the present day-to-day needs of me and my family. That's okay. And then he brings a fourth one, which I had never thought of before, but he calls it adventure. To use our resources in adventure. And the way that he describes that is to invest in experiences, not possessions. Experiences are the things that we share with other people that build lasting memories. That's a wise use of our resources. For some it might be a concert. For some it might be a camping trip with your family. For some it might be a a short-term missions project. Maybe to Mexico or, or with Hope for Kids or some other organization that we work with together as a church. But some of your income ought to be invested in adventure. Building memories that are eternal. He says those are the four great uses of money. What Jesus says is use your resources for the things that truly last. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. New Living Translation puts it this way. He will give you all that you need from day to day if you will live for Him and make the kingdom of God your primary concern. So the challenge to me, probably the challenge to you this morning is, what am I doing with the resources He's given to me? Where do they go? I think, to be honest with you, I need to be challenged with this every month, (laughs) at least once a month. What am I doing with my resources? Am I investing them only in the here and now, trying to buy security, Trying to buy fulfillment. What portion am I using to invest in eternity? Jesus said, that's the best use of whatever He's given you. Would you bow your heads with me? As 21st century Christ followers, the Bible says that we are stewards of God's resources. And it has been this way from the very first century. It has always been the task of those who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ to be aware that all that we have been given is God's. And He's entrusted it into our hands. Yes, for our enjoyment. Yes, for our use. Yes, for meeting the needs of ourselves. But also to meet the needs of others to invest in eternity. The truth of the matter is, God has generously provided every one of us in this room with so much. And Scripture says, to whom much is given, from him much is required. I think we battle this dragon of materialism and consumerism on a daily basis. It's never easy. Because it's a wrestling for your heart. We battle with self-sufficiency and 
providing for our own well-being all the time. And I think the best way that we battle it is by practicing disciplines of gratitude and of generosity. Jesus said our heart will always, always follow our treasure. Talk to people at times and they say, boy, I wish I, I wish I had more of a heart for poor people. You know how you get that heart? You start giving to their needs. I wish I had more of a heart for missions. You know how you get that heart? By investing and in giving to those serving the Lord around the world. He says the heart follows your treasure, not the other way around. If you wait until you develop a heart for it, you will never make that change. But when you make the choices that invest in eternity, your heart will always follow it. He says, invest in what lasts. Invest in the eternal. Be grateful for all that He's provided for you and be generous with it in passing it on. Lord, it is probably safe to say that every one of us in this room battles with this issue. We are constantly wanting more and feeling guilty about it spending sometimes without a thought and regretting it looking for status looking for acceptance looking for security when ultimately you are the source of all that we have and you are a good gracious generous giving God my prayer this morning for every one of us is that our hearts would beat with gratitude, recognizing that you have been our provider all along. And that we would learn to live generous lives, to help, to give to those who are in need. To that end, Lord, we need to get beyond ourselves. And for that, we need the work of your Spirit in our lives. So, Lord, please do so. In each and every one of us, I pray. Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.